Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. So today is our Q&A. Um, we had a couple of questions uh, submitted this morning um, after worship service. And for time's sake, we're not going to get to all of them, uh, but we will get to one of them. And then one of the ones that was asked uh, over this last month. One is a fairly hmm, not straightforward answer, but quicker answer. Uh, and the other is uh, a little bit longer of a study, so we'll just do the first one first. Does that make sense? First one first. We'll do the easiest one first. Now this question, I am not going to answer this question. Okay? I'm just going to read some Bible verses. Alright? Uh, I have a feeling this question was asked. It was asked this, after, or this morning after worship. I have a feeling it was asked given our morning uh, Bible study. Um, and this is a question that, uh, that made it circle around the churches of Christ about, I'd say, about nine or ten years ago. Um, and hasn't really been talked about a lot since, but it was somewhat controversial, which is why, for the benefit of those that may listen online to this afterwards, uh, and the benefit for us, that's why I'm only going to read Bible verses. Okay? So... Are you ready? The question is this. Is it a sin to pray to Jesus or to the Holy Spirit? Here are the Bible verses. John chapter 14, verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Acts chapter 1 and verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these Two, you have chosen. Verse 21, three verses earlier, sets the context. So, no, so one of the men who have accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So he calls him Lord Jesus in verse 21. Verse 24 says this, You, Lord, who know the hearts of men, show us which of these you have chosen. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. This is during the time when Stephen is being stoned to death for the preaching of the gospel. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22 and 23. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Your translation may say Maranatha or Maranatha, however you pronounce that word. It means this, our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord, Jesus, be with you. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Sorry. (coughs) 
singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Through him, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. And finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'll add this at the end. The word Lord is the Greek word kurios, which just means someone who is over me. So in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is uh, being convicted on the road to Damascus, he says, who are you, Lord? That's not an acknowledgement of the deity of Christ. That's just an acknowledgement of the superiority of Christ. So the word Lord just means someone who is superior to me. You always have to look at the context to see what that word is talking about. It could be talking about God the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. It could be talking about Jesus Christ. And so if the context sets it, that's what the word means. In every verse that I just read, the word Lord is either followed or immediately preceded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are all passages where Jesus is one called Lord and is two prayed to. All right, question number two. What about the mentally ill? Are they safe like children, or do they need to be baptized? This is in reference to a class we had a few weeks ago. And I wanted to clarify, because in the class time setting, we didn't have a lot of time to go into depth about what we were talking about as far as children and their, their state of righteousness, their state of salvation, if you want to call it that. So let's go through a little, uh, a little uh, thought process here together. Number one, children are not saved, okay? Number one, children are not saved. Uh, Psalm chapter 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like venom of a serpent, like deaf adder that stops its ear. So the psalmist calls a child or says that the estranged are estranged from the womb. That's also poetic language, okay? There is an aspect of poetic license in the book of Psalms. So for instance, Psalm chapter 51, where it says, I was in sin when my mother conceived me. Well, David is not speaking truthfully. He's speaking in poetic language. He feels like from the moment he was conceived, he has been sinful. In Psalm 58, that's somewhat of the same situation. He feels as though the wicked are always wicked. From the moment they're born, from the moment they're in the womb to the time they're, they die, they're always wicked. It's poetic license, okay? So, number one, children are not saved. In order to be saved, you have to have been lost beforehand. If I, I have a dollar bill here. If I take this dollar bill and I, saved, and, and I say, I saved a dollar bill today. That means that I owned it. I could have spent it. It could have been gone but I saved it, right? If I'm going to save a child from getting run over by a bus, then that means that the child is in danger of being run over by the bus, right? It's either in the street or it's heading toward the street or something like that, and I saved them. So in order 
for a child to be saved, they must first be lost. Now, here are a couple Bible passages that talk about this. Ezekiel chapter 18, the soul who sins shall die. It makes it pretty clear, right? Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So I am responsible for my sins. Ezekiel chapter 18 goes on to say that I do not bear the iniquity of my father, nor does my son bear my iniquity. An important, an important caveat to this is what we talked about in Bible class this morning, that at the moment that a child is conceived, God creates a soul for that individual. That, that soul is not the same as the body. When, when a child is conceived, it's because two genetic pairs have matched up and created a third genetic pair that is like both of them, right? So that's why JD looks like me and acts like Becca, okay? Especially when he's yelling. Anyway, no, I'm just playing. But when a child is conceived, there's two genetic pairs that form into a third. When a child is conceived, that, that's not the same thing as what happens to the soul. The soul is created at that moment. So JD didn't receive any of my soul. Or Rebecca's soul. They re- he received his own. And it is his de- decision, it's his duty when he gets older to decide whether or not he's going to use that soul in the way that God intended it to be used or not to be used. Okay? So, we don't bear the iniquity of our parents. Which means there has to become a time when we come to the age that we call the age of accountability just means the age of maturity that's, that they're able to rationalize stuff, okay? Is it possible, just think about this for, to yourself for a second. Is it possible that a person can repeat the plan of salvation like these kids just did, but have no clue what it means? Yeah. Is it possible that you can repeat it and completely understand what it means and still not be to the maturity level where it, it, it does something to you, right? I can train a child what justification means. I can train a child what baptism does. You baptize for the remission of your sins. Justification means that you're just in the, right, just in the eyes of God, just as if I'd never sinned. There's a time when they cross over from knowing the knowledge, knowing the, 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 the academic knowledge, and it meaning something to them. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, not Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 7 says this, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. When he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So he's talking about this age that a person comes to the point where he knows to choose good and to get rid of evil. That's the point when now it's not just an academic knowledge of what you need to do to be saved. Like we teach the kids on Sunday afternoons. Now it's a, I know and I have, if you want to call it the wisdom, to know what to do with it. So, number one, children are not lost. Sorry, children are not saved because they've never been lost. They haven't reached that point yet. And in order to be saved, you can't be lost. Or in order to be saved, you have to have been lost. Number two, 
they, they aren't lost. So you can't be saved without being lost, and they're not lost, so they can't be saved. Children are something else. A child is not a saved person. That's why when we say the phrase, I know what we mean. That's what we talked about in the Bible class that night. I know what we mean when we say that I grew up in the church. I mean, raise your hand if you grew up in the church. Anybody grow up in the church? All right. Y'all know what that means, right? It means you grew up putting up with Christians. (laughs) Sometimes it's harder than others, right? But to grow up in the church just means that I grew up around it, right? Um, that, that man, Keith Mosier, who is now my favorite instructor that I've ever, you know, the guy that terrified me that I screamed at him and closed. Okay. Anyways, he always got onto us for saying I grew up in the church, which I didn't have a problem with that. Cause I didn't, he would get onto the guys that did. And he would say, you didn't grow up in the church. You were reared around the church. That's true, right? You grew up around the church. You grew up being influenced by the people of the church, but you weren't part of it yet because Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. If you have to be lost in order to be saved, and you have to be saved in order to be a part of the church, you can't be lost if you're a child, which means you can't be saved, which means you can't be a part of the church. But you can grow up around the church. And we use it accommodatively to speak that we grew up in the church, understanding that number one, if you're talking about the way the world uses that word church and you're talking about a building, you didn't grow up in the church. You grew up at your house, hopefully. I don't know of anybody that like lives inside the auditorium, but anyways. And if you're, if you're talking about, I grew up with Christians around me and influencing me, that's amazing. That's what I hope all of these kids here experience when they get older, that they will have, be able to say, I grew up in the church, I grew up with good, faithful Christians all around me that loved each other and worked hard and got the job done and taught people about Jesus Christ. But they aren't part of the church yet. Now, back to our question. What about the mentally ill? Are they safe like children? And I like that, that verbiage, safe. A child is not saved, but a child is safe. Okay? Is a mentally ill person safe? like a child, or do they need to be baptized? I'm going to uh, use uh, someone as an example who, if she knew that I was using her as an example, I don't think she would have a problem at all. Her dad was my Bible class teacher when I first obeyed the gospel, and he passed away four or five months ago, Waylon Burton. His daughter, Faith, is one of the nicest human beings I have ever met in my entire life. Faith doesn't have the cognitive ability to really understand a lot. She's just like a child. She's almost 50 now, but she's just like a child. She is sweet. She's just like a little girl at heart. She'll be sitting there, and I'll never forget. One time, one of the elders was announcing we were going to have a fellowship meal after worship, and Faith screamed out, "Mm, Mama, I get spaghetti. And I thought, yes, I get spaghetti. Yes. <laughs> She's amazing, but she doesn't have the cognitive abilities. There are some people who just don't have the ability to understand. Now, here's the catch. A child is safe because they don't have the ability to understand, which means if you don't have the ability to understand, you can't be lost, which means you can't be saved and you can't be a part of the church. 
you are safe. I believe that a person at that level doesn't have the ability to be lost. Waylon, who again was an amazing Christian man, taught my Bible class when I was um, new in the, in the faith. He used to say, I love faith because she's getting in on a kid's ticket. And, uh, and I always thought that was a good, a good analogy is that a, a person who can't rationalize can't obey the gospel. In order to obey the gospel, you have to hear it, believe it, repent of your sins, confess Jesus Christ and be saved. And I think, I think a lot of times we think that believing and repenting are just saying, yes, I agree and I'm sorry. And that's not the case. I'll, um, I'll leave you with one last quote. Um, one of my instructors a long time ago once said that he was, he was talking about Christian camps. And y'all know that I am a huge proponent of Christian camps. I think they're the best tool we have, one of the best tools we have to teach kids the gospel. Um, he said, I, I worry about camps because we baptize a lot of kids at camp. And uh, thankfully, the camps that we go to, that's not the case. They don't push it very hard, which is, I think, a good thing. But he said, I don't know at what point the age of accountability takes into effect, but I'm almost positive it is closer to 18 than 8. And what he meant by that is, it is so hard. Now, I'm not saying in every case, because there are some who are mature beyond their years. It is hard for a child to understand what it means to believe, what it means to really repent. They've been trained that being sorry means that you say you're sorry so you don't get in time out. And that's not the same. And, and a, a mentally ill individual is along the same lines. They, they, don't, they don't know what is right and what is wrong yet. Now, what about the, the mentally ill who, who have some sort of... Um, some, some sort of illness that makes them do wrong things, bad things. I think we can extend that to them as well, to some degree. It is not our job to decide when a person is guilty of their sins, when a person is accountable of their sins. It is our job to find the people who can listen and tell them. And if they can rationalize it and they can think it through and they can obey the gospel, then and that is their decision. If they can't because of something is wrong, because something is wrong, either physically or mentally, then that's their safety. And it's not our job. I mean, that goes for adults as well. It's not our job to, to decide who can obey the gospel and who can't. It's our job to just tell people. And if, if they can, they will. If they if they want to. And if they can't, it's not, it's, it's no, well, Ezekiel also says this, if I say to the wicked, you're going to die and you don't give him warning, the same wicked man's going to die in his iniquity and his blood will I require at your hand. So it's just our job to, to teach it. And if someone can't obey it, that's fine. Um, that's between them and their creator and but I have a feeling, given Scripture, that an individual who can't process the gospel, who can't make that decision, can't obey it, which means they can't be lost. 
If you can't obey the gospel, it's because you aren't lost. There's not a single person on this earth who is lost who can't obey the gospel. You know the reason why sprinkling? I mean, we don't talk about it a lot, but you know why sprinkling started for baptism? Why it started? It's because a king was about to die and he wanted to be baptized. And they thought, well, this man can't be baptized, so we'll sprinkle him. And so a whole religious movement started because of sprinkling for baptism. If you can obey the gospel, if you can have the thought process to obey the gospel, you can be baptized. Well, what if he doesn't live through it? That's not my, that's not my problem, as it were. Um, I, this is just me. Again, this is my personality type from this morning. If I were to die while being baptized, I'd be pretty proud. Uh, I, that's a little blunt, but that's true. It's, there's no one who has the cognitive ability who can't be saved. So if you need to respond to the invitation, we're going to stand and sing a psalm of encouragement for you. Um, if you want to be baptized for the remission of your sins, then let us know uh, while we do that.